Are you ready to know what you don't know about Privacy Pros? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast by KZN Privacy Experts. The podcast to launch, progress and excel your career as a Privacy Pro. Hear about the latest news and developments in the world of privacy. Discover fascinating insights from leading global privacy professionals. And hear real stories and top tips from the people who've been where you want to get to. We're an official IAPP training partner. We've trained people in over 137 countries and counties. So, whether you're thinking about starting a career in data privacy, or you're an experienced professional, this is the podcast for you. everyone and welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast. My name is Jamila and I'm a data privacy analyst at KZN Privacy Experts. I'm primarily responsible for conducting research on current and upcoming legislation as well as any key developments and decisions by supervisory authorities. With me today as my co-host is Jamal Ahmed, Fellow of Information Privacy and CEO at KZN Privacy Experts. Jamal is an established and comprehensively qualified privacy professional with a demonstrable track record solving enterprise-wide data privacy and data security challenges for SMEs through complex global organizations. To date, he has provided privacy and GDPR compliance solutions to organizations across six continents and in over 30 jurisdictions, helping to safeguard the personal data of over a billion data subjects worldwide. Welcome, Jamal. Hi, Jamila. How's it going? (laughs) I'm good. How are you? Hungry. Yeah, yeah. Hungry. So for those of you listening, we're recording this during the month of Ramadan, which in the Islamic calendar is the month of fasting, which means from sunrise to sunset, there is no food, there is no water, there is no marital relations, and we have to abstain from all of those things. And right now it's British summertime. So we're going for about, what is it, about 14 hours a day, Jamila? Ish. I don't know. Um, The hours have all kind of... But this year is easier than it was last year because we are at the beginning of summertime rather than in the middle of it. So it's getting easier and easier every year, but it still takes quite a toll, doesn't it? it So impressive. So James Robson is very impressed. Before we dive right into it, why don't you tell us a little bit more about James? Yes. Our guest today is James Robson, who is a data protection officer at the Evidence Quarter, which is home to a number of organisations, including Reform, What Works for Children's Social Care and Neighbourly Lab. James has 10 or 10 years of InfoSec and data governance experience, including privacy, security, information management, system design for multiple large multinational organisations. His qualifications include the IAPP SIPI, CIPT, IBITGQEU, GDPRP and ISO 27001, they sound amazing, lead implementer, and he proudly (laughs) considers himself a data protection nerd. Before joining the evidence quarter, James was a senior consultant for Evalian Limited, working on multiple data governance and security projects at any one time, being data protection officer for a number of companies concurrently. Before Evalian, he was a data governance and IT security specialist for the largest global psychometric testing firm, SHL Group Limited. Welcome, James. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It sounds so nice uh, it being read back. It's almost a little <laughs> bit nerve-wracking hearing it while 
Is that my career? Is that is that how I sound? <laughs> Thank you so much for that. No problem. And we'll get into more questions about your career shortly. But we always like to start off with an icebreaker question uh, on this podcast. And for some reason, earlier, I was in a Wikipedia rabbit hole and I was reading about the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. So I was wondering, what would you like to have on the fourth plinth? For those of people who don't know, we've got four plinths in Trafalgar Square in London. And the fourth one has often been empty and different artists have been commissioned to put artwork on there. So what would you have on there? Hold on, hold on. Before James answers, right, yeah. we need to add a bit of context. What's on the first, second, or the third plinth right now? Well, I didn't think you were going to ask me that because I can't remember. Here we go. Uh, so, some old people I've never heard of. Charles James Napier and Major General Sir Henry Havelock. Those are on two of them. So I'm not sure who, who they are, but I'm sure they were great. But anyway, James, what did you have on the fourth one? That's a huge challenge, actually. No, I was around uh, Nelson's, Nelson's column recently, and uh, it, it did have a, a cherry on top of a plastic bit of cream with a drone on the edge of it. And it's meant to depict kind of the size that drones will become and the possibility of AI actually being a a real problem with the fact that drones can be so small and and so damaging to people. So, you know, it it was a massive message. I'm not too sure uh, if I could um, have a message as as strong as that, that in any way. I mean, I'm a qualified yoga teacher, so maybe somebody doing yoga or directing a yoga class uh, from from the plinth and having everybody on their mats all over the area. I think that would be something that I think would be good to have there. Yeah, that would be pretty amazing for Londoners. Wake up every morning, feed rice, go to Trafalgar Square, and there will be James Robson on the fourth plinth doing yoga classes. Well, I didn't necessarily say it would be me. I don't, I don't think I'd, uh, I'd be up for that. <laughs> if, if you do it, I'll be there, I promise. Okay, awesome, awesome. Moving on to our more career questions, if that's a word. How did you get into <laughs> data protection, James, and data privacy? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, it, it's one of those things where I'd worked for somebody um, a number of years before I actually got, got into it, and uh, he set up a, a little information security consultancy, and and then he, he kind of uh, got in touch with me and said, there's this thing coming, it's called the GDPR. Do you, do you want to have a look at it? Because I'm thinking of hiring a consultant, and you, you might be a good fit for it. So that was literally it. He, uh, you know, a, a cost of coffee together when, when he's pitching, pitching whether or not I, I want to have a look at the GDPR and see what it's all about. I didn't even know what GDPR stood for at that point. You know, we're talking kind of 2015, 2016 when having those conversations. Uh, and I found myself you know, really liking that. I had a number of options on the table because I was about to move, move away from the place I, w- I wasn't quite enjoying. That one just seemed so appealing. I could see the scope and the, the enormity of the changes brought in because of this legislation, because the EU is leading it as well. And it had this enormous feel to it. You know, I was like part of something, part of the charge. I mean, I, I know a lot of uh, consultants, they kind of think, you know, yeah, you jumped on the GDPR bandwagon. You know what? I'm, I'm happy that to say that I jumped on the GDPR bandwagon because it's it was fascinating. Now, within my first uh, first couple of weeks of joining, did, did my training. And then I think it was my uh, my third week or so, I was off to Gibraltar uh, talking to a, a gaming gambling firm and, and uh, uh, taking them to a gap analysis. So it was real trial by fire when I think even the organization I started out, out in hadn't quite formalized 
um, how to put together what what a gap in us looked like, what a report mm. was, you know, what you know, different um, you know sections of the report I'd, ha- I'd have to write. Uh, in, in all honesty, uh, and uh, hopefully nobody from that organisation who recognises me is listening, um, I got to the end of the first hour of delivering the training, which I'd uh, rehearsed over and over and over, and then realised just a few moments before the end of the training, I had no idea what I was about to do next because nobody told me, I didn't have a report, hadn't been created, and so I just started asking questions and just had to really fight on the ground. And I, I kind of like those situations where your kind of back is up against the wall and you have to survive because yes. you just learn so quickly and you just, something happens and you just have to continue. It's like a bit, bit like a deer in the headlights without it making it look like you're a deer in the headlights and just make it happen. We end up winning some more, more business off the back, off the back of it. So uh, Hopefully didn't do uh, too much of a bad job, but that was a real trial by fire, uh, like starting out in GDPR, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how you mentioned uh, enjoying that pressure you was under and how it brings out the best in you. I find the same, and when we hire new consultants, one of the things I like to do is throw them in the deep end and see how they thrive and survive. And yeah. uh, I find that's the best way to learn. And yeah, I absolutely agree. When I first started looking into the GDPR, I remember I was talking to one of my friends in marketing. He was like, oh, yeah, there's this GDPR thing coming about. You're in data protection. What do you know about it? And I looked at it and I was like, this is fascinating. Like, I was feeling really excited. But at the same time, I was like, there's no way big tech, big companies are going to ever let this see the day of light. By the time it comes into force, I'm sure it'll be watered down to a point where it doesn't even make any difference anymore. When you know it came into effect, or it was announced 2016 is coming into effect, you've got two years to comply, and it was still looking the way it did. I was like, wow, this is going to be a game changer. I've, I've kind of enjoyed every minute since. And every day, the thing I love most is every single day there's something different. Every single day you're still learning something. And every single day somebody's announcing something new. So it's uh, we're always kept on our toes. And that's what I find uh, I love about this space so much is the fact that it's always changing and it's, you're always being challenged. And the moment you go on holiday for a few weeks or you take a little bit of time off, you come back, everything's changed and you've got a lot of catching up to do, which is also challenging, but also it keeps you on your toes. And for people that are motivated and driven and you know that look for that fast-paced environment, I can't think of any better industry to be in right now. Yeah, no, no, I agree. And it feels like it's, it's getting fast with the recent release of the Data Governance Act and you've got the Data Markets Act and the other, what, three or four acts that are coming out in the EU and then the potential updates and changes within the UK with the paper that, that, that's come out. So it's kind of fascinating times of how it's kind of embedded and developing and we've got a new commissioner and just trying to keep up with all, all this mm. stuff is just phenomenal. I mean, the thing that really excited me about uh, kind of being a you know, like the early adopter uh, GDPR consultant was the fact that you end up sort of having to know everything about that business that, that you're talking with. It, it's not, not just the business itself. It's every department of that business. It's every, you know, a name and email. We all kind of know it, but every part of a business will process personal data. So you've got to understand it and then make sure you don't miss something. And so you're not giving kind of bad advice, wrong advice, misunderstood advice so just keep on asking questions about every different part of every organization and kind of I, I bounce between you know everything from um i, I worked heavily for for sports direct that that, that are actually a phenomenal organization uh, on the inside there for sure right, right through to the smallest uh, so, sorts of organizations you know like one-man bands and recruitment agencies and dating agencies uh, one of the interesting ones was actually a uh, um, a gay male dating fetish website. They they had some uh, date protection challenges. I probably don't, don't want to to mention mention what they they were, but they were one of the uh, early adopters of, of GDPR and just want to get themselves sorted. So they were on mm. board, and you know it's a great great experience with with that bunch as well. So you know it's so diverse, 
and it touches everywhere. And, and somebody uh, recently um, in, in place where I work was saying to me, you know, it seems like you can just go from sector to sector. You can just kind of diversify, learn the sector, be a, be a specialist, then jump to another one. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's fascinating that the scope and the ability that an individual has as a privacy a professional, you know, you don't get locked into maybe retail or or maybe uh, SaaS service or something else like that. You can literally uh, jump from one to one to the next to next to next, uh, and that is what has really kept me so motivated in in the career. I'd, I'd recommend anyone to jump into it. Really, definitely. I think that's one of the things we enjoy most about having such a diverse range of clients on the consultancy side of our business. Is one moment we're working with tech SaaS companies, the next minute we're working with healthcare, next we're going into somebody with financial services. Yeah. And the great thing is all of the skills are transferable, all the qualities are transferable, but you learn things that are different. Let's say the healthcare sector is doing something one way and the financial service sector would never have thought about that. But because of that broad range of experience, you can now bring innovation to make yeah. even more pragmatic uh, solutions um, that actually work for the business. And everyone loves you uh, a lot for it. One of the <laughs> things one of the things you mentioned, James, uh, a moment ago there was about really getting to know the business. And one of the things I say to my mentees on the Accelerator program is, by the time we've done the data mapping, by the time we've done a record of processing activities, if you don't know how to do the job, every single person there with anything they do with personal data, you haven't done your job properly. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of truth in that. And, you know, it, it kind of leads me nicely into, into sort of what I do now, because, you know, the, the one place, the one sector that, that, that I didn't quite understand when, when I was a consultant was probably the research sector and how that all works. And that is like, t- was totally left field to the, the more corporate, more, you know, the, the normal GDPR stuff where, you know, legitimate interest is your uh, lawful basis of processing and consent for marketing and all, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, before I came to the evidence court, I, I did a big gig uh, consultancy for a, a larger pharmaceutical research organization and that really start start to open my eyes into the potentials of, of that as a sector and the, the real diversification of the kind of knowledge throughout all sectors because you know research if you really think about it is embedded into everything we do as well you know if you've got maybe a salesforce platform within any organization you're pulling out analytics and you're crunching that data to to make some business decisions and bi and then you've got kind of microsoft power bi and and uh, sql databases and, and all this kind of stuff and you know, really what they do and they're doing research on that data so how how do you make that compliant and is that okay and you know most organizations usually rely on that kind of the legitimate interest of the data controller to be able to uh, improve their organization internally now what's curious uh, about kind of research organizations is while there's a massive interoperability of that data because it's required within each research project and you will be sharing data between each organization and you could be anything uh, from two organizations to 10 organizations working collaboratively to produce a bit of research so i've kind of gone a little bit kind of in, in into what i do there but it's it was almost like the last bastion of uh, sectoral knowledge and i'm like you know what i, I want to see what that was all about definitely so you mentioned the evidence quarter and that's where you're currently working which is home to lots of organizations which do great work for communities what are some of the challenges with non-corporate organizations when it comes to data protection? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So let, let me tell you a little bit about the evidence quarter then. 
essentially there's something called the what works network the what works network is basically a network of research organizations that are funded by uh, central government and different governmental departments um, but the largest organization i work for under the evidence quarter umbrella is called what works for children's social care and, and they're directly funded from the department for education of course for research into children's social care services which um believe it or not before three years ago uh, um, hadn't had any any more than around about three randomized controlled trials on well what is the government spending is it effective and is it actually improving the lives of the of the children that we're we're putting money into uh, local government schemes and practices and charities is it actually effective so what works for children's social care does is uses that money to then uh, do research on those interventions, interventions like if we're taking a uh, disadvantaged child to the zoo once a week for the next five weeks, it's a fairly bad example, but you know, if we're spending that money to do that, does that um, have a significant improvement uh, to their lives and do them? Yeah, but what, is, what is the impact of that resource or that um, investment into the child's? Yeah, exactly right. It's exactly that. Mm. Yeah, 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 for sure. And so if you start to extrapolate out and go like, okay, well, how do we do that research? How do we collect that data? That's where the data protection bits and bobs kind of start to feed into that because uh, you may have interviews like uh, one-to-ones uh, or, or one-to-manys. Uh, there, there are uh, kind of uh, group sessions where focus groups, uh, for example, observations. So you may be there and maybe recording something that's going on and then mm. reviewing that data. So, of course, you've got video footage as well. And you've got to actually think about kind of the, the ethics as well, which is quite important, especially if you're having interviews. And ethics in research is based on something called the Helsinki Principle, um, which kind of stems from kind of run about the Second World War, where uh, if you are doing research on human subjects, then you need to gather consent. And so uh, lots of research organizations say, oh, well, it's a consent for, for the research. Then that, it's obviously consent for data protection practices. But unfortunately, that, that's kind of a bit of a misnomer because consent, informed consent in research is not the same as lawful consent as, as, a, as a lawful basis. Um, and the GDPR. So you've got that to kind of contend. And then you've got multiple collaborators. So I'm consistently working with multiple controllers. Maybe some of those are joint controllers and some of those will be independent controllers. So you've got the likes of maybe a local authority that is running this intervention, doing this great thing. Um, and, and then you've got the research organizations collaboratively uh, working to extract the data. Of, is it effective? Let's interview people, staff, families, children, and then also get the administrative data around all of this stuff. And not just administrative data. It's also the metadata that they'll, they'll possibly collect to then put this whole research package and research report together. So you, you've got all these little, little nuances of our joint controllership. I hadn't come across that very, very often. Uh, and then the fact that what works for children's social care is funded by the Department for Education. And we're then able to use public task as the, as the lawful basis. Now, I didn't come across that very often in my consultancy days at all. Mm. And, and, then, and then you've got the whole implementation of uh, data sharing agreements as well, where you have the ICO code of conduct for data sharing agreements, and um, it, it, it's often 
maybe you know there's a number of conversations to convince people that you don't necessarily need to share data between organizations to have to have or be party to a data sharing agreement it's a it's a shared use it's a collaboration and so that's the uh who what when where why and how of of the data protection within the whole project that you're collaborating on so you know there's there's numerous challenges there so you know you've got um lawful basis you've got joint controllership and you've got consent all of these kind of thrown into into the mix and then you know there's plenty of conversations and, and you know it took a while to to get then understand that that's that's what those challenges were because you kind of walk in and, and assume that you know there's a a really mature practice in, I guess, in the sector. And, and I found it wasn't necessarily as mature as I, as I thought. Some organizations did it great. Some organizations didn't do it so great. But yeah. then again, that was, that was kind of what I found in consultancy anyway. Yeah, I stopped assuming it's going to be a mature framework <laughs> for me to find anywhere in, in, in any sector. Out of all the sectors, I think probably the financial services sector is probably in better shape than most of the others. And I think that's because they're so heavily regulated with all the other stuff going on that yeah. it's, you know, they have they, they have the resources and the reputation is very important to them. Like that's that's, the, that's all probably the most important thing to financial institutions, the reputation. So they do take these kind of things very seriously. But what you're describing there, the, the quagmire of all of the different challenges you have to navigate on a daily basis, it sounds fascinating. And just trying to piece those conversations and explain the, those things to some of the stakeholders from the different organizations yeah. who might not be privacy educated, has its own challenges, as I've been discovering and I've continued to discover. So you must really need lots of great people skills. And with all of your 10 years plus experience, how important has it been to develop your communication skills to really thrive in your role like you're doing now? I, I think it's paramount. I couldn't have gotten where I am without a level of diplomacy because uh, one of the challenges here that, that uh, you know, I have to be very careful about is, you know, working with kind of doctors and professors and then research analysts and all these kinds of, you know, highly respected individuals. And in these organizations, they may have put together a, a set of data protection or GDPR policies and you know they, they've set things up in a way they understand you know reading ICO websites and other codes of conduct and you realize you know when you read this stuff that it's good but there's just something not quite right and you have to keep on digging and ask more questions until you unpack the onion and realize well for, for the untrained eye it looks okay um, but for the trained eye, actually, that th- there were some significant challenges to, mm. to overcome there. And then you've got to meet these people that, and then, um, you know, very diplomatically almost tell them that it looks great and I understand how you got there. In fact, the reality of the fact is it's X, Y, Z rather than um, A, B, C that, that, that you've put together there. So the, so the people skills have been like incredibly important. I mean, the sense of humility that you you have to come into these conversations because, you know, people do do get aggressive. They they you know they've yeah. spent a lot of time. They they um, are expecting a bit of a, a fight, uh, maybe because oh why do I need to speak to your data protection officer? You know I, I've spent kind of six months working on this and building this thing up, and and so you you don't want to go in in any way or shape or form trying to offend anyone and tell them they're wrong. It, it is one of those huge areas where it can be a bit of a minefield. And people do come in aggressively and confrontationally and sometimes trying to be difficult, trying to catch you out. And the ecosystem of working with, with other you know, data protection managers and DPOs and 
a kind of, I guess, untrained data protection professional is that they are trying to catch you out. They're looking at the policy and the clauses and they're trying to say, oh, this bit or that bit or this bit. And yeah, we want to change this wording because it doesn't make sense. And, and they're really quite, quite confrontational. And they may not even realize that you're the one that's written this and you're in this call with them and, and trying to go through these, these bits and bobs. You know, again, respectfully, carefully, and, you know, that interpersonal skills and being very, very polite. And often something I use in um, in yoga when, you know, somebody's asking me about uh, a certain pose, like a downward dog, am I doing, doing this correctly? I always go in with, well, what's positive first and then what can be improved? I, I, I usually try and double up on things as well. So it's uh, two things that, that are fairly positive and, you know, really respectfully saying, you know, I can understand the interpretation could be this way. But then, then backing up with information. So that that whole survival mechanism that we were talking about at the beginning that that you kind of build it's uh, it's not just survival. It's a backbone, but it's also kind of empathy and humility for for what you're trying to do and trying to achieve to get the best outcome. But also the knowledge base, because if somebody is asking you about something that is incredibly complex and technical, you know, you know, especially the com- let's take the comparison between ethical informed consent. And GDPR consent, when somebody is like adamant, no, consent is what we're going to use because that's mm-hmm. how we do, that's how we run research trials. And, you know, trying to explain to somebody, you have to back up with information and say there is a new, you know, ICO code of conduct on data protection research that confirms that should a participant, a research participant withdraw their consent during the research trial, then in that analysis, you have to stop using their data. So you could be in the middle of it and you've crunched all these numbers and, and all this data, but then you have to stop, remove it, go back. And it just it just falls apart very quickly. So it's not mm. a great mechanism. But it, what I'm trying to say is you have to back it up with knowledge. And the amount of reading that you have to do, uh, I, I think now is, is really increased dramatically because people are getting savvy and they are getting smarter and they are getting more technical with, with the legal language. And... You, you have individuals that are not the privacy professionally trained people, but they're dealing with you. And they're always uh, saying, well, um, our legal counsel, our legal somebody. <laughs> said it. they, they, it's like, this is, this is the comment from our legal counsel. I'm, I'm like, with the greatest of respect, I want to speak to legal counsel or I want to speak to that DPO because then I can have that kind of mutual yeah. professional conversation. So uh, yeah, all that stuff. I, I completely resonate with what you're saying there, James. And one thing I just remembered, as you were saying, you made me smile. So <clears throat> actually there's two things. Number one is you were talking about um, when you, put together documents and people kind of review and want changes. Like recently I've finished up with a client who read through every single word, like <laughs> dissected every single word in the policies Ooh. and all the standards. I was like, wow, it, it wasn't just a gist of it. It was just, they, they wanted to go through every single word by word and uh, say, why have we used this word? Why can't we use that word? And you know, sometimes it's, what we have to remind ourselves is look, we're there to serve the client. If that's what the client wants and it gives them the result that they're paying us to do, then great. Sometimes yeah. the client wants something, but it's not serving them or the organization. And we have to respectfully remind them, hey, here, I'm here to serve, but these are my objectives and this is taking us away from the objective. And one of the things we teach at the Privacy Pros Academy, so at the academy, we have this 12-week accelerator program. And on the accelerator program, um, there's five pillars that we focus on. And one of the first pillars is all about mindset. 
And all of this communication stuff comes into the pillar of the mindset. And I teach them a number of assumptions of empower, the assumptions of an empowered privacy professional. And one of the assumptions we always teach them is everyone is doing the best they can with the knowledge and resources available to them. So if someone's coming up with something completely incorrect and non-factual, or they believe something that's not actually true to be true, then we always assume they're doing the best they can with the knowledge and resources available to them. And it's up to us as world-class privacy pros to respectfully give them more knowledge that shifts their position. And the best way to do that is always by starting off by establishing the baseline, establishing the framework, remind them what you're here to do, remind them you're here to support them with their objectives, with their goals. And that I find whenever we do that, it makes for a much more core operative engagement with the clients. It's those ones that you know get you the hampers from uh, Harrods to say thank you when you've done a job well done. <laughs> At, at the same time, I've experienced where the client has previously gone to a magic circle law firm, had their documents revised, had them redrafted, paid £1,800 yeah. an hour for consultations. Oh. And I've seen the stuff and it's not worth the paper it's written on. And having to explain that, they're like, well, who are you, Jamal? Yes, you might have all of these privacy qualifications and stuff, but I've gone to Magic Circle Law Firm who have done this. So then you yeah. have to respectfully show them, look, this is what's required. This is what's happening. This is what best practice looks like. And these are the changes we need to make. We can keep things the way they are, but then the reason you've asked us to come and look at this is because things aren't right and you want to get to a stage where you are compliant, where you're actually going beyond compliance and earning, cultivating trust and inspiring confidence. And if that's what we want to do here, then this is not going to be the thing that the ICO comes and is very pleased with. 100%. I, I mean, what really strikes me with what you're saying is there's that bridge between legal and cybersecurity, which is, you know, that, that's why I got my uh, ISO 27001 lead implementer kind of uh, tick box course done to, to really solidify. And it's why I went for the uh, CIPT uh, rather than the CIPM um, I, I, as, a, as a thing, you know, not necessarily realizing probably CIPM is more valuable in the market, but hey, ho, you, you live, you learn. Um, CIPT, because of the technology piece and the cybersecurity, because you've got to understand the whole lot of it and jump between the both, whereas I found kind of legal teams, yeah, very legally focused, great. They know the high-level cybersecurity stuff, but they can't go uh, very deep. It's like who the vendors, what's a UTM firewall, what's a, you know, what's a SIEM solution, all that kind of stuff, and, and don't necessarily understand it to, to that level. But then you've got to interact with maybe a security team that that is running, you know, the GDPR practice within the organization. And you've got to understand what a what a UTM firewall is or what Palo Alto is all about or Cisco or Fortinet or SonicWall or all of the other um, organizations that, that are that are running diagnostics and, and, uh, and uh, potentially popping out flags and alerts to, to be actioned upon. And then feeding that maybe even into a privacy management system or a privacy information management system or a DLP system for, for somebody to manage. And so you've got to bridge all this stuff together and, and be the font of knowledge. And I was in a Privitar event, you know, Privitar being one, one of these big kind of consultancies, I guess, where they there was somebody from the IAPP and they'd done a poll on whether or not they thought uh, you know the the legal team should should run the GDPR practice within the organization and the poll came out that the legal team should not yes. um, you know so it's very very curious stuff yeah really curious stuff
Yeah. Uh, Jim, you mentioned a couple of the IAPP certifications there, and I know yeah. you hold the CIPP. You've, you've also said you've uh, attained the CIPT, Certified Information Privacy Technologist. One of the things that we've actually known for at the Privacy Pros Academy is our award-winning IAPP certification mentoring programs, and we offer the CIPPE, the CIPM, and the CIPT. Now, it's true, isn't it? Anyone can actually go and just read the book and go and pass the exam. But that's not really going to help you in the market. Employers, hiring managers, consultancies, they're not looking for people who have a piece of paper. It's great you have a piece of paper, you'll get a call for the CV. But the moment they start asking you questions, the moment you start going to consultancies, the moment you start working, they want to know you have the practical application of stuff. How yeah. important is it? Is it to work with a mentor to really get the theoretical understanding of how to apply the theory in practice for a thriving career in data privacy. You're talking to a guy who didn't get a mentor and had to kind of face the, you know, the dark side of K2 to, to get to the top of it. So I'd say I'd have loved that and it would have been incredibly helpful to, to be able to shadow someone. So I was the, the first data protection consultant in an organization called CyberCrowd. And when that seemed to pick up, we were able to bring aboard another chap and uh, he was able to shadow me and then be mentored uh, by myself and also the the, the CEO. I, I think the mistake most people make if they don't have that kind of mentorship is to go into a maybe a consultancy conversation and think they're talking about the data. <laughs> you know, it's not about the data. My first question is, forget what you think this is going to be about. What do you do? Just tell me what you do. I'll figure out where the data is flowing in there. That bit's easy because it's always second. And the, the more challenging consultancy gigs that, that I had and even conversations where I am now is where people are trying to feed me the right, what they think is the right information. We do this, we do this, we do this. The, the more they do that, you know, they're fairly convinced they know what you want, but actually they usually don't really know what they should they should give you. Therefore, they're going to give yeah. you the information. I, I find a lot of the times when they do that, it's because there's been a consultant, let's say a bad consultant <laughs> that's gone in before you, and they've sat there with the laptop and they've probably gone through a form on some kind of software application and they just asked them the questions and got them to fill out and do their work for them. And I say only bad consultants go there, pull up a laptop, pull out a form and try and populate that form without trying to understand what do you see you actually do? Yeah. Why are you doing these things? And how long have you been doing it that way? And are you following anything specific? Why are we doing that? Like, get curious, get to really understand why are they doing what they're doing? Does it actually yeah. make sense? When was the last time they reviewed the way they're doing things? And what you'll often find is people just, especially for the more established and the longer running businesses, they've just been used to doing things a certain way and no one's actually looked at it. GDPR's come in, we have to think about data minimization and all of these things. And we're just collecting all of this information because, you know, that's the way we've always done things. It's nice to have. And, you know, so, well, the last consultant that came he just asked us a bunch of questions. We filled out the form and he said, everything is good, right? So yeah. how do you overcome what someone's done, the damage someone's done previously? And I go always back to those assumptions of empowered leadership and embedding communication. Communication is so important. It's about building that rapport and then being able to pay space and then lead people towards the right outcome, which is a win for their business, which is a win for them as an individual, and a win for you knowing that you've got the satisfaction that you've done the job well done. You're absolutely right there. Um, uh, you, you can't go into those uh, conversations, you know, expecting the right answer, no matter what they say. There, there are a lot of privacy professionals now. That's the thing. And they call themselves privacy professionals. And I come up against them a lot. I've had, uh, you know, major higher education institutions 
I've gotten them to update their privacy notices and external facing policies because they just don't don't fit and are not right. And I'm the one calling calling them out in the same way that you know I've had the privilege uh, now to kind of kind of uh, nicely dovetail into something else that, that I've been up to, which is uh, creating a data archive in the Office for National Statistics and working with these uh, governmental departments and and understanding how how they work and you know actually ending up maybe in, in some capacity advising them on some updates they would do because what we were trying to put together had never actually actually been done before either. So there's lots of avenues to, to go down there, but the amount of people that do think they understand understand it properly in a way that makes them compliant is getting a little scary. I think the, the people with the types of qualifications that, that you guys do give you know, they just filter to the top fairly quickly and become well known. And but but there are there's still a lot of people making a lot lot of money out of this, and it's just going to grow. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger because the, the whole interoperability of data thing is not not going to stop. I think this is the longest I've ever stayed quiet on a podcast because I'm so listening so intently to both of you. <laughs> you briefly mentioned um, the Office of National Statistics, and you're passionate about creating a compliant data archive in the Office of National Statistics. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Jamila, that's flattering. So thank you so much for, for saying that. I, I kind of came into the evidence quarter and I guess within the first uh, couple of months that they had this project floating about, which was to, within one of the organisations uh, I work for within the EQ, it was uh, What Works for Children's Social Care. They wanted to put the social care research data into uh, an archive for future use, so secondary use of that data for future research. So you do the research once, that's a point in time, and then you make it available for for further research and other researchers to, to access it. In this secure environment, the ONS itself has an environment called the Secure Research Service, the SRS. They only allow a certain type of access. So they have something called five safes. So you've got kind of, they they have safe data, safe people, safe access. I forget the other two off the, off the top of my head, but they really put you through the ringer to, one, if you want to set up your archive, you have to jump through like numerous amounts of hoops and legally and then documentation and technically and all, all those kinds of things. But the whole concept behind it, of course, is, well, you don't just want this point in time data. You want to get the richness of that data to be used over a long period of time mm-hmm. and then end up making it maybe a longitudinal sort of study. And, and you've, got, you've got to remember that the ONS, of course, they have everything from us, from census data to you know NHS data, a Department for Education data, National Pupil Database, the HESA database, that's Higher Education Statistical Authority da- databases, all this kind of incredible information that researchers w- where I am, you know, they do get interested in running a bit of research to see if, well, did this intervention that the local authority paid for, for the kids to do something, or for the families or social workers to do something, does that have a positive impact over maybe a three to five year period on academic achievement from the National Pupil Database? So wouldn't it be great to put those two together? And so they do, and they can. What I've been privileged to to do is actually be part of the first charity to get data into the ONS um, outside of kind of a a, a governmental uh, institution to provide this richness of data of like, yeah, we've done this intervention. This is the cohort. This is the group of people that we're uh, researching upon. Was that intervention effective? And we also put it up against the National Pupil Database, for example, for academic achievement. Mm-hmm. If you're doing a secondary bit of research and you want to use the data that What Works for Children's Social Care has 
and you want to find that pupil from the National Pupil Database, you can use our data to, to do so and match it with the data that you've collected. So you've got this kind of triangle going on here. You've got mm. the ONS with the National Pupil Database. You've got our data that we've mapped via anonymized methods. It's more functional anonymization as a methodology. So you can find that child in our data and then have an outcome for your report but it's all still anonymized. You can never pull that data out and go like, oh, it, it, it's a little John Smith or Jane Smith over here that's that, that we're looking at. Although in the mechanisms they have, you're able to kind of crunch the numbers up against the same set of people. Hopefully that, that makes sense. It sounds a bit scary and fascinating at the same time. What was you going to say to Jimla? No, I just think as a researcher, sometimes you get data that doesn't give you the whole picture. So being able to put that against another set of data that can give you more information and the bigger picture, I think, is really useful. For sure. And and what the ONS, a secure research service, really is, is what's known as a, a trusted research environment, mm-hmm. which really feeds into the whole concept of, uh, I, I guess, the advancement of privacy enhancing technologies. And there's this, this huge push now and in, in, uh, the NHS um, within the last few months, have received a two hundred million pound government grant to create a trusted research environment for the full interoperability of all NHS data. And in fact, yesterday a paper came out uh, called the Gold Acre Report, which is like one hundred and twelve pages uh, of report around well, what what's the overall goal? We can actually, you know, maybe look to solve the challenges around cancer, around strokes, around all these kind of debilitating uh, diseases by getting hold of all NHS data. I'm talking all GPs, all hospitals, make it completely interoperable and also have the data scientists and data analysts use that data within these trusted research environments. As you can imagine, what's happened is you've got a lot of trees, TIEs they're called, trees, in like lots of different hospitals with lots of different sets of data that different uh, researchers can get into and use that data. Now, what if that is totally interoperable? And how do you make that compliant? What's the legislation? I mean, that's massive data sharing where we generally don't know how our NHS data currently is being used, for example, for what outcome and where is it? How is it being used? And the, the government is just relying on public task for public benefit and public interest as a lawful basis for for non-consented data. So that's what what they call it. You know, I've I've kind of done a bit of consultancy for an organization also doing research, but using what's known as the NHS HES data, H-E-S, hospital episodic statistical data. And that is in fact sold by the NHS to um, organizations to run analyses on our data. We're not aware of where it is or what it is or why it's being used in that way. And then you've got the GDPR saying, well, Article 14, you've got to have a, a data protection notice for anything that isn't collected directly from me. Like, where, where are they all? And how do you ever know which one to which one to look at? So they've got some huge challenges to overcome. And I think one of the ways that, that it will and will be kind of a massive development in uh, in pets, uh, privacy enhancing technologies is, you know, is, is the federated analytics, federated federated learning, and then taking it a step further, and, and then adding the likes of a differential privacy. What I found is the ONS have begun to use um, a term called functional anonymization, which is which is a fairly new thing, uh, especially in these these data sets where 
you know, it says the way you use that data means it remains anonymous. Now, arguably, you could say pseudonymization isn't that the same thing because um, I'm not going to give you the key to re-identify. But then you've, of course, you've got to go through the motivated intruder test to see if, well, what if the, the key or a separate data set or external data sets could allow you to re-identify? Whereas functional anonymization uh, means you can use the data that, that is identifiable in a way that you would never be able to re-identify through technical means. So it, it's not even necessarily a pseudonymization per se. It's all technically anonymized, even though at the point you are using it, it's not anonymized. Which is which is very curious stuff. Sounds like that's something that needs further investigation to really appreciate gravity of what you're suggesting is possible. There. Yeah, uh, UKRI, something called the, the, the UK Research. I forget the acronym, but they're actually funding a project that, that I've got involved with called the Dare UK, where they're creating a blueprint around how to make data interoperable in these environments and also retain privacy and the protection of personal data. And one of the challenges they're having is, well, well the legislation, how do you actually comply with GDPR uh, with these things in these mechanisms? And I've often kind of talked about it in, in, in sessions I've had with them around, well, surely it's a bit of a, if you want people to know what's happening with the data, you've got to keep a bit of a ledger of that stuff. And what's the newest ledger technology that, that's popped up? You're talking decentralized ledger technologies, blockchain being an example of that, which is, of course, uh, uh, what, what Bitcoin is uh, based upon. Although when you really think that a DLT, a, a distributed ledger technology, uh, and blockchain is just one type of DLT, you've got the opportunity to create a DLT to then be able to, pardon me, record what is happening with your data interoperably on an open ledger format that you would only have you'd have access to from maybe your own digital identity wallet, then nobody would be able to re-identify you. So it's like, it's way out there and the technology is there and I've gotten so excited and it's all because of this ONS project. Sorry, a bit passionate. <laughs> no, don't apologize. We love passion. We love passion. And that's what the Price Pros Academy is all about, is giving ambitious uh, professionals a community to come together where they can be passionate with the right people around them. I want to ask you one more question, if we can squeeze it in. Yeah. And this is in relation to people listening. We've had over 12,000 um, downloads at the point of listening. We have audiences across 83 different countries. Privacy is growing in every single country that I can think of. What advice would you give to privacy professionals to really take the career to the next level? The strength of the, the profession is highly respected now and is becoming so embedded. So, so what, what, what is the secret? You know, approach it with a total blank slate, open mind in every conversation you have around Around personal data. I mean, we kind of talked talked around that that sort of stuff. But just read constantly and get involved with with what's going on. That's the only way you can learn and pick up and keep going. And you you will make bad choices and be okay with that and stick your hands up and say, yeah, that that was a a bad choice, a bad call because of my my interpretation um, of something. But but then solve it. What's the secret sauce? It's being a problem solver. If you can solve problems, then you're in for a pretty good career. And so it's a level of creativity. I mean, if you are the maybe the more technically minded and, you know, this is how it needs to be, it's X, Y, Z, and there is no other, you know, maybe data protection isn't necessarily for you. Whereas the more creative uh, you are and can be, and you have that, 
like a little bit of flair of personality as well, then data protection probably is for you because you need that. But you also need that real inner resolve to be able to tackle conversations and questions from people that are maybe the tops of these multi-million pound organizations that are questioning you, that are pulling you apart in front of all your colleagues and all theirs. And you've got to very respectfully defend yourself and, and come back. So, you know, I think that takes quite a creative mind and a, a speed of thinking. But it's about, you know, just be real, be yourself. You can't know everything. Be honest if you don't know something and, and just be empathetic. People will then respect you a bit more. But one thing I always try and do is leave people with a smile. Leave them actually a bit lifted. Like, like oh, my interaction with James or, or whoever is like, yeah, I really like it. Because people do not remember you for what you tell them. They remember for how you make them feel. So if you make them feel good, they're going to like you. And you kind of need to have that maybe little bit of spark and charisma to, to be that point of contact where they want to get in contact with you and tell you about a breach that they've caused. It's a real problem that could take the company down if it's not solved immediately. But they've come to you within the first 10 seconds of them realizing. And I think that's the secret source. It's that real, again, it's interpersonal skills and making sure they trust you, you are respected, and they feel good about interacting with you. Absolutely, 100%. I couldn't agree more with some of those points you made, James, especially the one about remembering that. People don't remember what you say, they remember how you made them feel. And if you can make people feel good, if you can make people feel great, if you can make people feel like you're there to help them and you're adding value, they'll be more than happy to reach out to you. And I think one of the reasons I really put so much energy into making our mentoring sessions, our consultancy fun is... I tell my consultants, I tell my mentees, we're not just there to get a task done, we're there to give people an experience. And the experience is how they reflect on the service that we're providing. And that's the reason why 80% of our business comes to referrals is because of the experience that we give people when they choose to work with us. So thank you for uh, spilling my secrets, but also for sharing <laughs> that with our listeners, uh, valuable listeners across the world as well. You're James, it's welcome. been absolutely amazing speaking with you i'm sure we could speak for hours and hours on end thank you so much it's been a pleasure having you on our podcast jamar jamila thank you amazing if you enjoyed this episode be sure to subscribe like and share so you're notified when a new episode is released remember to join the privacy pros academy facebook group where we answer your questions Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're leaving with some great things that will add value on your journey as a world-class privacy pro. Please leave us a four or five-star review. And if you'd like to appear on a future episode of our podcast or have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to hear more about, please send an email to team at kzient.co.uk. Until next time, peace be with you.